This episode of the Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 1st. In today's news, this recession is the most unequal in modern U.S. history. As Kim Jong-un wooed President Trump with love letters, he secretly stepped up his nuclear capabilities. And a top Trump official is concealing a polar bear study that could affect oil drilling contracts in Alaska. But first, the big idea. The president's incendiary remarks on white supremacy and his baseless claims of electoral fraud during the debate had Republican officials privately expressing alarm about the fallout with key voters, even as Trump himself felt like he successfully electrified his core supporters. But few Republican politicians voiced their outrage in the wake of Trump's norm-shattering spectacle, including his statement that the extremist Proud Boys, a male-only far-right group known for street violence, should, quote, stand back and stand by. Responses ranged from silence to muted criticism, reflecting how the GOP remains convinced that an alliance with Trump and his voters is crucial for survival with just over a month until Election Day. Asked Wednesday about white supremacy as he left the White House for a rally in Minnesota, Trump told reporters that he has, quote, always denounced any form of any of that. He said he didn't know who the Proud Boys were, and he tried to clarify his remarks from the previous evening, saying they have to stand down, not stand by, and let law enforcement do their work. But the president's standby remark has already become a galvanizing movement for the reactionary right. The hashtag white supremacy was trending on Twitter in the United States all day. Trump's comments were enshrined in memes, including one depicting him in one of the Proud Boys' signature Fred Perry polo shirts. Another meme showed Trump's standby quote alongside an image of a bearded man carrying an American flag and appearing to prepare for a fight. One prominent Proud Boy supporter said on Parler, a conservative social media platform, that Trump appeared to give them permission for attacks on protesters, adding, quote, this makes me so happy. For many members, the president's remark was the validation that they've long craved, quickly turning into a fundraising and recruitment drive while experts worry legitimizing the group's violent tactics. Moreover, Trump's debate stage call for volunteers to stand watch at voting locations has prompted an enthusiastic response from known neo-Nazis and other right-wing forces. My colleagues Amy Gardner, Josh Partlow, Isaac Stanley Becker, and Josh Dossie report that Trump's comments are leading many state election and law enforcement officials to prepare for voter intimidation, arrests, and even violence on election day. The Trump campaign and Republican National Committee for months have promised to recruit as many as 50,000 poll watchers to monitor voting locations. The campaign's Army for Trump website has contributed to that effort. But more extremist supporters appear to be joining in as well raising the prospect for confrontation and outright intimidation at polling locations. Andrew Anglin, the founder of the neo-Nazi website The Daily Stormer, wrote in a post last night that he got shivers watching the debate, and he still had him a day later. 
He said the president telling people like him to stand by was understood to mean get ready for war. The Oath Keepers, a heavily armed militia group that formed more than a decade ago, which comprises current and former law enforcement and military members, also is pledged to have volunteer security teams at Trump rallies and then out in force on Election Day. At least three Democratic attorneys general in Massachusetts, Virginia, and Nevada issued statements yesterday reminding the public that voter intimidation is illegal and that the laws will be enforced. Already, instances of suspected intimidation have popped up at early voting sites. On September 19th, the second day of early voting in the Virginia suburbs of D.C., Trump supporters staged a rally outside a polling place, which required voters to make their way past the crowd, prompting accusations of impropriety. And in Philadelphia this week, at least one Trump supporter showed up at an election office demanding to watch voters fill out absentee ballots and turn them in. The person was turned away. Trump alluded to the incident during Tuesday night's debate, falsely claiming that Philadelphia election officials were trying to hide fraud. Earlier this year, Trump publicly floated the idea of using law enforcement officers to patrol polling places, invoking tactics historically used to intimidate voters of color. But a federal law bars U.S. government officials from sending armed men to the vicinity of polling places. And the Bipartisan Commission on Presidential Debates announced that it plans to take swift action to add additional structure to the format of the remaining two debates between Trump and Joe Biden in order to, quote, ensure a more orderly discussion of the issues. But it's not clear what kind of rule changes could be effective, given Trump's personality and his view that breaking the rules appeals to his base. Nielsen announced that only 64.7 million people watched the debate. That's a lot, obviously, but it's a decline from the 84.4 million who watched the first debate in 2016. That figure may grow a little bit after smaller networks counts are added in. But Paul Fari says that also doesn't include many millions who watched the debates via live stream. Moderator Chris Wallace called the night a terrible missed opportunity. The Fox News Sunday host said he never dreamt the event would go off the tracks the way it did. He told the New York Times that he flew home from Cleveland right after the debate aboard a private jet. And at the airport, he accepted a glass of champagne from Lachlan Murdoch, whose family controls the Fox Corporation, and Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox. But he said he really didn't feel like celebrating. Speaking from his home in Annapolis, Wallace told the Times that he spent yesterday involved in what he described as a certain amount of soul-searching. Meanwhile, the fever swamps of the internet were getting even worse. Misinformation about Biden's health spread like wildfire in the aftermath of the debate. It was pushed in many cases by the Trump campaign itself. One official Trump campaign ad, which was marketed primarily to people over 55 in Florida, said falsely that Biden was wearing an earpiece. On TikTok, four grainy videos alleged that Biden was wearing a wire to cheat during the debate. They racked up more than half a million combined views on Wednesday. Neither video shows any evidence of Biden wearing any kind of electronic device. Facebook said all these falsehoods would undermine the legitimacy of the election and reiterated the company's previous announcement that all political ads will be banned on the platform in the week before the election. Twitter announced that it acted on a tip from the FBI to remove 130 accounts that appeared to originate in Iran and were attempting to sow disinformation during the debate. TikTok also announced that it will remove those phony Biden videos after being contacted by the post. Remarkably, nearly every top post on Facebook after the debate yesterday was from a pro-Trump commentator. 
That's a major shift even from 2016. This means that many Americans who primarily get their news from Facebook are living in a media ecosystem where Trump crushed Biden. All of that into account, perhaps most troublingly, Tuesday's debate has stoked a perception overseas that America is in her twilight as a great power. There was a time when much of the world watched Trump's conduct with a mix of worry and amusement, concerned about U.S. policy, but content to watch the spectacle. That time has passed. Emily Ruhalla and Rick Nowak on our foreign desk report that the global reaction to the debate was somber and disquieted as foreign leaders considered anew the increasingly real possibility that an American president could challenge the results of November's election, rattling the foundations of democracy and roiling the global economy. Though Trump's presidency has been defined by moments of disruption and surprise, what unfolded this week still seemed, to our correspondents who watched this stuff full-time, like a turning point. Views of the U.S. among some of our closest peers have slid to the lowest level in two decades amid Trump's clashes with foreign partners and over the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. But even among America's critics, there's been a widespread assumption that American institutions would prevail. That confidence gave other countries the ability to watch the U.S. with a a bit of a wink, treating Trump as a circus act that would pack up and leave town one day. But as the election gets closer, observers in foreign capitals have become much less inclined to laugh. For traditional U.S. allies especially, this debate was another sign that something is deeply wrong with a country and a system that, while flawed, has served as a beacon of freedom for the world. A German scholar worried that, quote, our motherland of democracy has gone down a dangerous path. The headline in Canada's Globe and Mail said, quote, that was gross. And an editorial today in Le Monde, the great Paris newspaper, calls our presidential debate a warning sign of what could happen to France if the people aren't vigilant about populist demagogues. Four years of Trumpism have largely contributed to weakening one of the greatest democracies in the world, the editors warn their readers, adding that it is a lesson for everyone else. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, Recessions often hit poorer households harder, but this one is doing so at a scale that is the worst in generations. While the nation overall has regained nearly half of the jobs we lost in the spring, several key demographic groups have recovered more slowly, including moms of school-aged kids, black men and women, Hispanic men, Asian Americans, younger Americans aged 25 to 34, and folks without college degrees. White women, for example, have recovered 61% of the jobs they lost to most of any demographic group, but black women have recovered only 34%. The recession's inequality is a reflection of the contagion itself, which has caused vastly more deaths in low-income and minority communities and severely affected jobs in restaurants, hotels, and entertainment venues. But behind those numbers are real people who are struggling to feed their families. My colleagues Heather Long, Andrew Van Dam, Alyssa Flowers, and Leslie Shapiro tell some of their stories. One really stuck out. James Barker, a black handyman from Chicago, has seen his work opportunities dry up. You don't want to cry, he says, but sometimes you have no choice. 
James received his first call in months on Friday and was offered 12 bucks an hour, half the rate he commanded before the coronavirus. He needs the money, so he took the job, which is only going to last for a few days. But he says most people just don't understand how unfair this has been. And in the race for a solution, the FDA has widened its safety inquiry into the AstraZeneca vaccine. After reports that that vaccine caused a serious illness in one patient, the agency will look at data from earlier trials of similar vaccines developed by the same scientists. And the CEO of Moderna says its vaccine candidate won't be ready until next spring. He tells the Financial Times that the drug maker will not seek emergency authorization for a vaccine for frontline medical workers and other at-risk individuals until late November at the earliest. Number two, in a secret letter to Trump in December 2018, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un likened the two leaders' budding friendship to a Hollywood romance. Future meetings with Your Excellency, as Kim refers to Trump, would be, quote, reminiscent of a scene from a fantasy film. Even as Kim penned those words, He was busy creating an illusion of a different kind. At six of his country's missile bases, trucks hauled rock from underground construction sites as workers dug a maze of new tunnels and bunkers, allowing Pyongyang to move weapons around like peas in a shell game. Southeast of the capital, new buildings sprouted across an industrial complex that was processing uranium for as many as 15 new bombs, This is all according to current and former U.S. and South Korean officials, as well as a new report by a United Nations panel of experts. While North Korea has refrained from carrying out provocative tests of its most advanced weapon systems, it has never stopped working on them. That's according to U.S. intelligence officials who my colleagues Joby Warwick and Simon Denyer spoke with. Indeed, brand new evidence suggests that Kim took advantage of the lull by improving his ability to hide his most powerful weapons, and shield them from future attacks. For Kim's part, the easing of tensions has opened new routes for circumventing sanctions, while his factories continue to quietly churn out more nuclear warheads and bigger missiles to carry them. Again, this is according to current and former U.S. intelligence analysts. The result, two years after the start of Trump's unconventional peace overture, is a North Korea that U.S. officials say is better armed and more dangerous. Number three, a top official at the Interior Department has delayed the release of a study that shows how oil and gas drilling in Alaska would encroach upon the territory of polar bears, especially mothers and their cubs, which are already struggling for survival as a warming planet melts their habitat. Post reporters Juliet Eilperin and Desmond Butler obtained documents that show how U.S. Geological Survey Director James Riley, a Trump appointee, has refused to make public the study written by his own scientists of the number of female polar bears that den and give birth on land near the southern Beaufort Sea. This is the same area that overlaps with federal land the Trump administration has opened up to oil and natural gas development. The study's been ready for at least three months. But Riley has been questioning why it uses data collected by a former agency scientist who now works for an advocacy group and why it does not count each polar bear den individually, among other things. The study, which was also obtained by the Post, notes that shrinking sea ice in the Arctic threatens the survival of polar bears, but also notes that it enhances the opportunity for oil and gas development in the region. Federal officials 
are racing before the election to sign off on a $3 billion drilling project on the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. The delay to the public release of the report, which has already been peer-reviewed and approved through the agency's most rigorous scientific examination process, is just the latest effort by Trump political appointees at the Interior Department to challenge federal scientific findings. In February, Fish and Wildlife Services took the unusual step of inviting public comment on a peer-reviewed published study by federal scientists that outlined ways the fossil fuel industry could minimize the harm to polar bears caused by its seismic testing in Alaska. And Riley's office has weighed in on other politically sensitive studies, including one about climate-related flooding and another on the loss of billions of birds in North America. Last year, according to three current and former agency employees, Riley's office delayed the release of a study that found California would suffer more than $150 billion in damage due to sea level rise and flooding linked to climate change. In that instance, Trump political appointees in the press office rewrote the release accompanying the paper to cut every reference to climate change. And that's the Daily 202 for Thursday, October 1st. Before I go, I want to give a plug for The Post's newest podcast available today. It's called Canary. It's a seven-part investigative podcast about what happened in the aftermath of a sexual assault when an unusual public warning connected two women and how that warning led to a devastating allegation against a powerful man in the D.C. criminal justice system. You can listen to all seven episodes of Canary starting today, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Daily 202 this morning. I'm James Homan. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This episode of The Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections.